Thank you, Larry. Thank you guys for having me this morning. We've had such great thoughts so far. Uh, we've had, and what an encouragement. The prayer and the scriptures read beforehand, let us not sleep as the others do, but let us remain awake and sober. We belong to the day. Let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of our hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage and build another up, one another up, just as you already are doing. John chapter 17, please. I've mentioned in a number of my messages. Uh, in John chapter 17, if you have a better Bible than I, you'll find that it's all red. My uh, Bible doesn't have any red printing. I don't know, actually. But in John chapter 17... I want to read verse 3. This is the prayer of Jesus, the so-called great high priestly prayer of Jesus. We could start in verse 1, I suppose. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. King James Version, and it's hard to get mind, they may know thee. This is eternal life. This is Jesus' thoughts of us. When he defined eternal life, eternal life is defined as knowing God. I have many times spoken from this platform about how we can know God. God wants us to know him. Our finite, unimaginable, unimaginable grace his unimaginable spirit of amazing attributes, seemingly sometimes in contradictory with one another. His justice, his righteousness, his love, his holiness. I want to talk to you today about one story which has captivated me for the past several weeks. I've been praying about what to speak on, and some time ago the Lord caught my attention with one of the parables that he has taught. Probably... I think you could argue maybe one of the most popular parables, if not popular parable. And that is the parable in Luke chapter 15. I want to read this to you. Actually, I'm only going to spend time on the first two-thirds of the parable. The rest of the third of this parable uh, talks about the resentful older brother, and I'm going to uh, pretty much ignore his part. Many people, commentators and expert theologians who are much smarter than I am, believe that he represents the Pharisees, and I'm going to just uh, take their word for it and ignore that part for the most part. I want to talk about the first little bit, and I want to talk about this because this parable teaches us one aspect, but a huge aspect of the heart of God. This parable shows us the heart of God, and I have been captivated by the heart of God. And I want, I think that I want to look at this and we can read this. Now, let me, uh, I give you, I guess give you a heads up. Um, the parable of the prodigal son, you know it. There's a son, he's prodigal, and there's a father who's not. And the father represents the father, God. The father in this parable represents God the father. And the son, the prodigal, represents us. All sinners, all unbelievers who repent and turn to Christ. And so I want to read this to you, and then I want to speak a little bit about it, and then our time will be over. And uh, 
then we'll be able to go home and have some lunch and life will carry on. But let's start in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. I'm going to read in my new favorite translation, the Berean Study Bible. It's a fairly modern English translation, but uh, it does try very hard to remain faithful to the uh, terminology and the uh, nuance in the original languages where it can. So, Luke chapter 15, verse 11. I'll read till maybe about um, verse 24. Chapter 11, or chapter 15, verse 11. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to him, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. After a few days, the younger son got everything together and journeyed to a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. Verse 14. After he had spent all he had, a severe famine swept through that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his belly with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him a thing. Finally, he came to his senses and said, How many of my father's hired servants have plenty of food? But here I am starving to death. I will get up and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still in the distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The son declared, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, and a ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And the Lord blessed the reading of his holy word. Let's look to him now. Lord... Father God, we ask you for guidance and direction as we look into your word. We pray your spirit would stir our hearts and our minds, illuminate your words to us, and that we would uh, have our hearts turned to you, and our discernment opened and our understanding uh, satisfied that we might uh, seek you, be reconciled to you. In Christ's name, amen. The prodigal son may be the, best, the most well-known parable. <coughs> the thing that struck me well, there's a lot of things that struck me. We're going to spend some time now letting you know what struck me. This this father evidently had a fairly large estate. Um, he said, uh, there's a man who had two sons. The younger son said to him, Father, give me my share. So he divided his property between them. And so his son took away his inheritance. So one of the things that uh, I looked into was how much would that have been and if he had just these two sons, the older son is supposed to be given two shares. 
And the younger son, if that was his only other son, would be given a single share for a total of three. So after dividing the estate into thirds, one of the thirds would go with the younger son who had demanded it. I was thinking to myself, if if I had to uh, just, you know, give away a third of my stuff, I'd, I'd, be, I'd have to move, I'm afraid. I wouldn't be living where I am and probably wouldn't be driving, uh, you know, the cars that I drive. But that's just me. So this this uh, father seems to have been fairly wealthy. He didn't. Uh, he, he he did pretty good. But looking down and concentrating on this son, the first thing that really struck me about this son was his attitude towards the father. So when he says, "Give me my share of the estate," you know what that means, right? That would be his inheritance. Now, normally, an inheritance is given to someone after you die, after you're dead and gone. Then your children and those that remain after you will divide your estate and they will uh, utilize it in whatever means I guess they want to do it. You're not going to be there to worry about it. But that's not the case with this son. This son said to him, Father, give me my share of the estate. I was thinking about what this means. The son, right out the bat, says to the father, Father, you're not yet dead. That's too bad wish that you were, let's just pretend that you are. Give me my share. You know, think about the, uh, the affront. Think about what this means, what this indicates about the relationship between this son and his father, where he would come to the father and say, Father, you are as good as dead to me. Give me my share, please. He didn't say please, did he? He just demanded it. And so... I was thinking of what this indicates. The relationship between the son and his father severed, right? The son is, the father is as good as dead to me. Give me my share of the estate. That's all I'm interested in. You, no, my share. And so that struck me. I was just thinking about that. And I think we could probably dwell on that for far longer, but I don't want to bore you. I thought about that for quite some time, about what this indicates, and it's, it's not a good, it's not a good uh, indication. What's interesting here is the father's reaction. So right off the bat, the first reaction we see from this father is that so he divided his property between them. So the father said, absolutely, son. I'm not sure if I'd do that to my kids. If my kids said, dad, you're as good as dead. Or dad, I, too bad you're not dead. I wish you were. Could you give me my inheritance now anyway? I'm not sure what my reaction would be, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be, oh yeah, let me uh, call my accountant. I don't think I would do that. But this father evidently did. So he divided his property between them. That struck me. This struck me. And the reason it struck me is because of the larger indication of this parable. The larger indication is that this parable is a picture, a picture of men and of God, of the natural-born sinner in rebellion against God and against God the Father. It's a picture of this relationship. After a few days, the younger son got everything together and journeyed to a distant country. <laughs> this son promised himself something better. He said, self? You know, my father's fields and his, you know, parties and whatever it is that my father does that's also exciting to him. Not exciting to me. Let's go make a life. Let's go have fun. So he took the money, and he went off, and he squandered it. We read, he went to a distant country, 
we would probably think this is outside the, the land of Israel. Eventually he ends up working for a farmer of pigs. That wouldn't be uh, something you normally see within the land of Israel as pigs are unclean animals. So this was probably outside of the land of Israel, as far away as he could get. This is the unbeliever's spiritual condition before God. This is a spiritual condition where an unbeliever, where all of us, as we are born, are divided against God. We are separated from God, and our hearts are dead to God. An unbeliever on the street, his attitude towards God is, well, God is dead. Can you give me my inheritance now? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? And so that's the attitude of this young son. And so he goes and he squanders it. Later, his older brother claims that he uh, squanders it on prostitutes. We don't know. We can assume but he squandered his wealth, my translation reads, in wild living. I think some translations read reckless and other words that mean the same thing. Wild living, recklessness. And so he went and ate and drank and he bead Mary, as Emmeline probably would have said when she was little. He bead Mary. Well, he did that and then it was gone. But just think about the father. I'm thinking about him watching the son march off. A fat purse, you know, over his back. And there he is, marching off, and a father gazing after him, knowing what the son's going to do. What is the son going to do? He's going to march out there and eat, drink, and be merry. He's going to blow it all. That whole bag of loot on his back. The father knows this. And the father watches his son in sorrow, in love, and off the son goes, outside of the land of Israel. So he eats, drinks, bees, merry, and runs completely dry. So verse 14, after he had spent all he had, a severe famine swept through the land. Just thinking about the, the son's condition to where he, he had these desires. He had these desires for pleasure, desires for Maybe he did indulge in prostitution. These desires for his own living, to be his own boss, to be his own king, his own God. And this is not, is this not the desire of every human born to say, I want to do what I want to do. It's the desire of Zachary, I can tell you. You know, little four-year-old Zachary, when it's time to, okay, Zach, it's time to go. I don't want to. I know, uh, but that's the time it is. You know, and we have a little argument with him. This is the, this is all of us. But what I want to bring out is something that I was thinking about is that as, as a Christian, we know that the unbeliever, for example, in Romans 121, we read that although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. And in Romans 128, we read, furthermore, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And of course, we know that these verses describe American culture today, do they not? He gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. God's in the process up there. Just like he let this younger son go, I was reading um, in Deuteronomy, in fact, in chapter 30 and verse 19, Moses says this, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today, and I have set before you life and death. And this is the, this is set before all mankind. 
life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, Moses said, so that you and your descendants may live and that you may love the Lord your God, obey him and hold fast to him, for he is your life. And he will prolong your life in the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that same attitude is in God today. Choose life. I've often told my children that God doesn't make anyone go to heaven. God's not going to make you go to heaven. God, you know, he wants you, desperately wants you to be with him. He wants you to be reconciled with him. But he won't make you. This is one of the things I try to teach my children about the strange aspect of the free will of man and the sovereign will of God. That which I don't think we'll ever fully grasp. This is something that should astonish us as humans. But this is the heart of God. And that's what I want to show to you today. The heart of God. The very, very heart of God. And so the son was a follower of his own desires. In Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this guy's treasure was on his back in a sack as he carried it on down the road. And eventually, I guess he spent it on where his heart was. James 1.14, though. I want to read this to you. James 1, chapter 14. Or, no, I mean, bleh. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is lured away and enticed Then, after desire has conceived, it gives gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I wanted to say that as I was reading this, there's a part of me that recognized that that son, that son as he walked away, there are sometimes parts of my heart, as a Christian, as a believer, I sometimes take a little part of my heart and I say, well, I want this to just be my own way. And I start walking away from God. And this prodigal reminded me of just some aspects, some bits of my life that I'm like, well, I just want to hold on to this. And this is just my little thing. This is mine, God. You can have the rest of my life. You know, how about you have the Sunday morning part of my life? How about if you have the Wednesday? I'll even give Wednesday night to you, God, because, you know, I'm so generous. I'll give you Friday nights. How's that? And I was thinking about how I, I myself tend to give God just kind of what I want and hold back little parts that are like, well, I just want this to be mine. Can't I just have it? Well, actually, I'm not going to ask. I'll just take it, God. Thank you. Anyway, this is going to be. And I was thinking about how all of us naturally, as even as Christians, we can still have what I call disordered desires. Our desires can be disorders, disordered Against God's will, against God's word. Um, I was thinking in John chapter 8 verse 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And even as Christians, we don't escape. Even as Christians, we still have a nature within ourselves that wars in our own spirit and in our own body. We still tend to worship our own pleasures rather than our creator. We still tend to worship ourselves rather than our creator. We still tend to worship, at the very least, our comforts rather than our creator. We tend to look for blessings outside of God's kingdom. We look for blessings by making them ourselves. We look for blessings 
outside of our Lord. Instead of looking to Him for our complete and utter satisfaction, we look to all kinds of things. Sometimes, I'll be honest, I have a, sometimes a little trouble sleeping, and sometimes I look to sleep as, you know, if I could only get a night's sleep. That, that's a perfect night's sleep. I, you know, sometimes I get a night's sleep, and it's got little holes in it, like Swiss cheese. If I could only get a perfect night's sleep, you know, that would be utter happiness. Can't imagine anything greater in life. Sometimes I think like this. I know that sounds stupid, but my brain and my heart sometimes seek after things that are apart from God's word. And I think all of us do. Our spiritual heart requires spiritual satisfaction, but we tend to ignore the spiritual and focus on the physical. Do we not? We seek transient pleasure over lasting spiritual satisfaction and joy. Have you in some area of your life traveled far from God in your heart or actions? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let's continue here in verse 14. This poor, young, foolish lad. After he had spent all that he had, in verse 14, a severe famine swept through that country, and he began to be in need. And so in verse 15 we read, So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his belly with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him a thing. And this is, I think, surprisingly wonderful. Is this not surprisingly wonderful for this young man to realize that he cannot help himself and neither is anyone around him? And this is this is actually what I would pray for an unbeliever. I would pray that an unbeliever would realize that you cannot help yourself, neither can anyone around you. We're all in the same boat. It's as if we were all drowning and we need someone on the shore to hand us a lifeline. And so that's what this young man realized. And I think that this is so clear here in verse 17. We read, finally, he came to his senses. How many of us as Christians have to go through this. I I have to realize that as a Christian, when I tend, you know, to idolize getting a good night's sleep, or when I tend to idolize even maybe a moment of peace without someone yelling, Dad, you know, whatever it is I'm, I, I want, I have to realize that satisfaction is not going to come from getting a good night's sleep. It's not really all it's cooked up to be. I know because I had one about... Uh, several weeks ago, I had a good night's sleep, and it wasn't all that it's cracked up to be. You know, you wake up in the morning, you're like, "Wow, I had a good night's sleep. Today's gonna rock." You know, actually, it was about the same as any other day. I don't know if that surprises you, but that surprised me. It's the same as every other day. So this son realized that he could not save himself. Finally, he came to his senses and said, "How many of my father's hired servants had plenty of food? What a great re- realization!" But here I am starving to death. Believer and unbeliever alike must acknowledge that without God, we are hopeless. Ephesians 2.12 tells us to remember that at that time you are separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12. 13, of course, 
says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Second Timothy 2.15, we must all realize that we, without God, we are all captive to sin and the snare of the devil. In 2.15, it's uh, actually 2 Timothy 2.25. 25. He must gently reprove those who oppose him in the hope that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Then they'll come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. Oh, that we might escape the snare of the devil ourselves and never be captive to his will. Never. In any areas of our lives. I was reminded of Psalm 16, 11, and where we must recognize Believer and unbeliever alike, we must all recognize that God is the only source of anything good. I think in in times past, Christianity has painted a boring picture of heaven. Christianity has painted a very dry picture of God the Father, sitting very dryly up on his throne, looking down his long nose at the people below. And in Psalm 16 we read, You have made known to me, the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. Keep that reference in mind. Read it in your own translation. Read it in several translations. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is the source. Think of it. You know, whatever pleasure you desire on earth, you know, I desire one day to own a super fast car and for there to be a road with no traffic and no speed limits somewhere. Uh, that probably won't take place. But if, it, if that happens, you know, that sounds like a fun job to me. God's the one who invented, you know, the part of me that says that would be a lot of fun. God's the one who invented that kind of pleasure. He invented every kind of pleasure. Imagine the kind of pleasure that comes from wonderful fellowship together. Imagine the kind of pleasure that comes from comforting one another, from being comforted. God invented all of those pleasures. Every one of them at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hard to get rid of the the King James in your mind. It's such a lovely, at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. I could say so much more about that verse. That's such a rich verse for me. Pleasures forevermore. We must understand that God is the only source of anything good. And so here we read in verse 18, this son repented. And this is what it looks like. It doesn't say he repented. It only tells us what he did. He said, finally, he came to his sister and said, how many my father's servants have plenty of food? How I am starving to death? In verse 18, I will get up and go back to my father and say to him, this is really cool. He rehearses this little thing. I won't mention the princess bride. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he rehearses this little thing. This is He puts it in his brain. He's like, okay, what magical incantation do I give to my father that will grant mercy upon me? And so he thinks about it. Okay, father, I have sinned against you. Right? Where, where was I? Uh, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He recognized uh, God's ultimate authority. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so the son realized that God here is the one. His father represents God. And so 
In Hebrews 16, 11 verse 6, I'm sorry. In Hebrews 11 verse 6, we read, Without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who approaches him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Only God can satisfy you. Last week, our preacher read from Isaiah chapter 55, starting at verse 1. I encourage you to do the same. You could read verses 1 and 2 for several hours, several days, and ponder those. But we must turn to God from our idols, whatever our idols are, whether it's something simple like a good night's sleep or whether it is our own selves as complete unbelievers against God. And so this son recognized it and he repented. You know what that means, to change your mind. He changed his mind and said, I'm going to go back to my father. He recognized that his relationship was damaged. In fact, if you look at there, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants, he says. He recognized that he himself had destroyed that relationship. An unbeliever must recognize that you yourself have destroyed your relationship with God by your very nature. Thankfully, we're going to get into the God's response in just a little bit here. So he, he approached his father, set himself towards the land of his father, and started walking. He didn't necessarily know how it turned out. Would his father accept him? Would his father reject him? He didn't know. So he goes on. Verse 20. This is the good part. So he got up and went to his father. There it is. So he got up and went to his father. But... My version reads, but, but while he was still in the distance, his father saw him. His father saw him. His father is a picture of our God and father, and he is always on the lookout. Proverbs says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, observing the evil and the good. Psalms 53 says, God looks down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if any understand, if any seek God. Here is God's attitude towards Israel in Isaiah chapter 65. God says, all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in the wrong path, who follow their own imaginations. All day long I've held out my hands. This is the Lord our God that we serve. This is his heart. This is God's heart. He holds out his hands. He is ever vigilant to watch. Now this is a physical parable signifying a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth is that just as the physical son turned and started marching, and while he was far, far off, he was instantly seen by his father. The same is true of an unbeliever who turns and looks toward God the Father. He sees you immediately. He recognizes you right there. The same is true of a believer who has hidden sin in his heart and needs to make it right with our Lord. If you have an area of your life that you've hidden off and said, well, this is mine. This is just mine. As soon as you lift the cover off that and say, I'm sorry, and turn to God, he sees you right away. He's vigilant, ever looking for you. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, the next part is my favorite part. In my translation, it says, while he was still in the distance, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. David, do you have your Greek? Can you pronounce that word? I can't either. Never mind. You don't have to. That 
word compassion is an unpronounceable word. No, it really is. I, I tried. Uh, can you do it? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> he can't really do it. Trust me. It's an unpronounceable word. It's it's the most craziest word. It's got like X's and CH's and NG's and all kinds of crazy stuff that shouldn't be together in English. It's really bad English, but it's great Greek. When it says filled with compassion, the root of that word is the Greek word for guts. That's a word that you use as a kid, right? You know, you know, I hate your guts out. So, but the Greek word, root, the root of this all, it's a big giant word, and the root word of that is guts. He felt a feeling. God's feeling is in his guts. It's a deep feeling. This is, this is the heart of God. This is what really struck me. It says he was filled with compassion. And what that means is his gut was wrenched. God the Father looks at his son turning. And this is what he does. He ran to his son. So I'm told by the commentators and all the fanciful books on my shelf behind my desk that evidently people in those days, men, you know, uh, you know, respectable men in that society apparently didn't run. Now, we do know that they didn't have any cars, so everywhere they traveled, they walked. But evidently, according to at least uh, most of the commentators that could tell me anything about this, apparently men never ran because it was, you know, uncouth. It, it was uh, immature. It indicated that you were in a hurry and you wouldn't ever want to indicate something quite so uncouth. And so you wouldn't. But this father, he ran to his son. This is the heart of God, the very heart of God. The second that you're, you turn towards God and plot your course, he runs to you. And God the Father can run pretty fast. He's right there with you. He's right there, right? Think about the spiritual application of this physical parabolic story. His father saw him, was filled with compassion. His, within himself, the father said, oh, my son, wham, I'm there. He ran, and he was there. This is the heart of God. This is the God. I want to convey to you how deep his love is for us, his children, for all mankind. How deep is his love? He ran to his son. So he embraced him. He kissed him. This is indication of full acceptance. Now, here's the son in verse uh, yeah, verse 21. The son starts to deliver his rehearsed speech. My translation reads the following, and it matches up with the previous verses. The son declared, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now my translation stops right there. Your translation might continue on with the next sentence, but not all. The reason that some translations do and some translations don't is because not all ancient manuscripts Continue on. In the original, in verse 19, the second half of that, you read the last sentence of the son's heartfelt confession. Make me like one of your hired servants. But not every manuscript, not every ancient manuscript has that. Some commentators claim that that was added at the end of verse 21 by some pedantic scribe who thought, well, surely the son finished his rehearsed speech. And so they copied the end of verse 19 up to the end of verse 21. Other commentators believe that the son didn't get to say those words because the father interrupted him. 
I'll leave that decision to you. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring on his finger. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the father might well have interrupted the son, but the, the fact is that the son doesn't have to say a rehearsed speech. Just like us, this is parabolic language, physically speaking, of a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth is you can't say any words that will earn you your father's forgiveness. Your words are just an outpouring of your heart, and it's your heart that God sees. If you are a deaf mute and your heart turns to God and desires forgiveness in the language of deaf mutes, Father grants it immediately, right? And so here is something interesting. The Father did not treat the Son as he deserved. In Psalm 103, we read, He has not dealt with us according to our sins or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving devotion for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The father did not condemn his son. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The father did not sit in judgment on the son. Whoever him who sent me, whoever believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment. Indeed, he has crossed over from death to life. And so the father very quickly, oh wow, I'm out of time. Let me tell you about these gifts that the father says. The father brings a robe. The robe is a ceremonial robe signifying that the son is now a guest of honor. He's more than a son. He is now in a better place than he was originally. I was reading in Revelation chapter 19 about the bride of Christ. And we read in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She was given clothing of fine linen, pure and bright. For the fine linen she wears is the righteous acts of the saints. As God's church, the bride of Christ, we have been given new clothes, just like the Father gives to the Son here. The ring, the ring is signifying the Father's authority rests on the Son, because the Son has now been brought back into the family, not as a slave, but as a member of the family himself. In Galatians 4, we read, uh, but when the time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive our adoption as sons. We, too, are adopted into God's family. We, too, have received a robe and a ring, not as a slave, but as a son. More could be said, but we're out of time. The sandals signify, we are told, I'm told by the commentators that I read that I trust with, you know, a grain of salt, I guess, that evidently uh, slaves were not allowed to wear sandals. Some commentators say they weren't allowed to own sandals, but they could wear sandals. So that's sort of unclear. But the fact that the son is given sandals indicates he's not a slave. He wanted to come back and say, I'll be a hired slave. But the father said, never. And the same is said to us. We who come to God the Father, we're not brought in as slaves, we can willingly put ourselves in a position and say, I'm a bond slave of Christ. But that's a willing, a willing position that we 
want to enter into. The Father adopts us as sons into his family. In Hebrews it says that Jesus was not afraid to call them brothers, them being us. Okay, and finally the celebration. He says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us feast and celebrate. And so there's a celebration. We read that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous. That's in Luke 15 earlier in verse 7. And in verse 10, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this is the position that we we have. Dead and now we're alive again. We were lost and now we are found. We are all prodigal sons. All of us are prodigal sons. If we have returned to God the Father. If we have not yet returned to God the Father, we're still prodigals who haven't yet returned. If you have not yet returned to God your Father, if you have not yet come to your senses, then I urge you to consider the love of God that the instant you turn toward Him, His heart wrenches within Himself and He's moved by love and compassion and there's rejoicing in heaven. Okay, I have run out of time, and I won't take any more of yours. <coughs> we read in First John that we love because he first loved us. And I think that this parable, I, I could say so much more. This parable says so much about God's love. We love because he first loved us. And this parable shows us the heart of God, the very heart of his love for us. And so let us say with Paul in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's give thanks. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for this parable, for the teaching about your own heart. Thank you for the Son, the Son, the ultimate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and made a way for us to be reunited with you, united with you in faith, through faith, adopted into your family. And uh, Lord, we just thank you, praise you in Christ's name. Amen.